This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. I think the the only thing is just, and there were times where I would be frustrated, right? And the, the answer every single time, the correct answer was have a little bit of patience and get a little bit more love. Dory one, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Back to Military Veteran Dad, episode 83. Today's episode with Matthew Griffin. He is a former Army Ranger turned entrepreneur. He is the owner and co-founder of Combat Flip Flops. You may know him and the brand from his appearance on Shark Tank. This episode, he shares a lot of deep emotion about raising his daughters and how growing up as a single child, no in a masculine home, how that really had to grow into that process of becoming a dad, raising daughters, and how that has changed his life. And so without further ado, let's just get right started with Matthew Griffin. Welcome to the show, Griff. Good morning. Your story and what you're able to, what you're doing right now is not something we've really touched on the podcast and depth of a dad and also an entrepreneur and also one that runs a successful online retail store. Go ahead and unpack a little bit about your family, a little bit what where your business is right now, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm Griff. Family, I have two awesome daughters, 16 and 15. Uh, my oldest is, we're shopping for cars for now. My youngest is getting ready to go to high school. I live in Issaquah, Washington, mountain bike, ski, climb, hunt, fish, you know, kind of cool environment. It's about 20 miles east of Seattle. And uh, I work for a company called Combat Flip Flops, and we make fashion and lifestyle products in war zones. And then we use our profits to put little girls to school in Afghanistan. Kind of a funky idea. And then, uh, you know, it just kind of took off over the years. And in between that, I've made a couple couple documentaries and films that have won some awards. Um, and that's, you know, it's about it. I do some other things in life, but <laughs> those, are the, those are the large bullet points. What about military service? Uh, I was an Army Ranger. So I graduated from West Point in 2001. Wanted to be a fire support officer in the regiment. So you know, basic course, Ranger School. Got to my first unit. And as soon as I could, I went to Second Ranger Battalion, and I did three tours to Afghanistan and one tour to Iraq as a as a company fire support officer in Second Ranger Battalion. So then you most likely were a dad while you served. Uh, my first daughter was born on September 11th in 2004, and my she was supposed to be born in October, and we were like supposed to be tailing up our deployment at the end of September. So I was just barely going to make it. September 11th, my commander walks in, throws the sat phone at me. It's the same man you're going to be a dad. And so I listened to my daughter be born on a sat phone, you know, from Afghanistan. You know, so that was a interesting morning. Um, and then my youngest daughter was born right after uh, I got back from Iraq. So my youngest daughter was they're 13 months apart, I guess is really the thing. 
So I was pretty close back to back kids while serving and deploying. Yeah, that was interesting. So while we're in that timeline of your kids being born, tell us a bit about Griff back then. Maybe what was he scared of? What was he thinking? What was it like knowing that he's responsible for raising a daughter in this world? As soon as I saw her, I knew my priorities were going to shift. You know, as an army ranger, you do really dangerous work all the time. And you, a lot of people are dependent upon you. And like you take a risk level in your life that could, you know, higher than likelihood you could end up like not coming back. Um, and so like I poured myself into that. I love my job. I love the people that I worked with. I was, you know, I, I, I can't say enough great things about the regiment and the experience that I had there. Um, but I knew that the experience of my daughter was going to be way better. And so just, it really forced me to look about what I was doing with my life and the direction, like moving forward. Um, had you not been leading, being, thinking of that leading up to the birth? Like, had you been kind of like not being aware of like how much your life was going to change? Dude, dude, I was fighting a war. Like I was running missions in Afghanistan for months on end, like doing really dangerous work every night. Like that stuff kind of went into the, into the compartment and the closet and I had to box that stuff when I got home. Yeah. Right. And you also got a little bit of a slap in the face when you heard your baby baby being born on the phone, like, wow, there was something I'm I'm not necessarily maybe dealing with, but I will eventually get to it. And it's a funny story about that is um so my daughter was born early and I looked at my commander and I was like, Hey sir, if I can get a bird home, like can I go? Like we don't have anything going on right now. We're just packing up here. And he looks at me and says, Yeah, man, if you can figure it out, you can go. And so I quick like we always pack civilian clothes in our deployment bags. Like we're ever going to use them. And I finally got to like pull them out. I threw my backpack on and I walked over to the contractor airfield. Like the plane was full and I begged with the lady. I was like, look, my daughter was just born. I got to get home. Like I need a flight to Germany right now. And the lady was like, okay, we can fit one more. And like talk, talk my way onto the plane. And I was gone like six, seven hours later, which was, a, you know, really cool to command and be able to get back. So that was, that was fun. That was a little funny story about that. How many days between when your daughter was born did it take you to get back home? I landed. Uh, so it was about, I was under 36 hours, like getting all the way back. It was pretty um, fast. It was pretty fast. So I was able to like get out of the airplane, you know, go home, get a shower, and then go to the hospital to take, you know, see my wife and take my daughter home from the hospital. Is there, if you could go back in time, let's stay here for a little bit longer. If you could go back in time and, and leave a piece of advice on a sticky note for that Griff back then, what would you want that Griff to maybe do more of maybe to start sooner on something? What would you want him to know? Like I always go to the tactical things when I give people advice on kids. Cause the, uh, the emotional stuff is just like, you never know what's going to happen. Um, but this advice was given to me the day before I found out we were actually pregnant. Like my wife was at the time was in the military. Um, and I had just gotten home from Afghanistan and she'd just gone to Iraq and so we had a month like lap over and then she got to Iraq and then they, she found out she was pregnant. Right. And then had to come back home. So she flew home. And so the day before she flew home, I was just standing on a range with a, uh, another platoon leader. And he was like, yeah, kids are easy. And like, what do you mean? He's like, they're just like weapons malfunctioning, like, you know, slap, tap, rack, bang, like whatever the, the sequence is. He's like, it's the same with a kid. Are they hot, cold, tired, hungry, gassy, or like, you know, poopy. You just go through the list and your kid's going to be happy. And I was like, oh, that's pretty smart. Right. And that having that checklist when the kid got upset enabled us to get like great sleep, which enabled us to be better parents, like bad sleep means bad parenting. So, and that's so you, you think that like, 
the when you think it's okay, we're gonna have a kid, you go through that process, and then the baby comes and you're losing sleep and you just feel defeated every day. Like, what the hell were we thinking, thinking that this was a good idea? But that's a very good example there of just focusing on the routine and getting through that. The worst part is when they start to get their free will, because then they don't follow all the instructions that you're going through and they detour at the step three instead of getting to step six, which is maybe what they're upsetting with. But in those early stages, that's you're just going through the process to see which one of the ones is the one that's wrong. Yeah. Watching them grow up. It is interesting to think about all the different phases of parenting you go through, you know, from having like the big jungle bag full of, you know, diapers and bottles and pumps and gear and carriers and everything else like that to the strollers. And then, you know, then you start graduating into like bicycles and everything else like that. And now it's like their, their footprint gets bigger and then eventually, you know, they're, they're smaller. It's, it's interesting how you have to manage the kids like through all the different phases. Was it that priority shift that slowly led to you get out of the army or what story is behind you deciding that your time is up? Yeah, I just, uh, I knew that I like, I had a really exciting job and the lifespan of that job is two to maybe three years. And then after that job, you're riding a desk for the rest of your career or you're doing, you're not having the same level of participation in what you're doing. And I was like, I just don't want to spend this much time away from my family if I really don't love my job and feel committed to it that way. Um, so just, Hey, I'm going to get out. I'm going to get on with the rest of my life. Like my grandparents did, my dad did and everybody else like that after they got out of the army. So how many years did you serve again? Uh, I served five years. So before we go forward, let's go back just a little bit further. When you joined the army, what were you looking for? What was Griff looking for in life when he decided to raise his right hand? I said, I want to be an airborne ranger, live that life of guts and danger, right? Like I was a 18-year-old kid from Iowa, you know, from a military family. Like, I wanted to go be an airborne ranger. It was like, cool job. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. There's a lot of people that join out of that tradition. The idea of, I, uh, I just want to go for the experience and the adrenaline rush of what you were feeling through all that. So that's when you got out, did you struggle to take off the uniform? No, not really. Uh, I struggled to drop the mannerisms. Yeah, those are definitely hard. Especially if I always found it hard difficult when you were talking to another soldier or a Marine, like they would turn back on like a light switch. Like you'd work so hard to turn them off and then you're talk to someone about military jargon. You're like, bam, you're swearing again. You're talking all this randomness and it's like work so hard to get that off. And just, you know, you know, the type of environments that you work in, your expectations of commitment within, you know, the workforce and the groups that you're used to working with. I mean, just imagine going from an elite team of being surrounded by a hundred army rangers, right? All G and clicking on the same vibe and like doing really dangerous work and like being successful to going to sit at a like corporate cubicle. Is that where you, did you land in a corporate cube? No, I didn't. I ended up uh, getting a good middle ground with the construction industry. So that was like a good, like in between regular civilian world and the military because it was still pretty production driven. And then it's the trade. So they're all kind of rough and tumble. Yeah. There's a lot of jargon, like you're rough around the edges and there's, there's construction site talk. Yeah, you can have you can have like a, a man-to-man discussion with somebody of like, no, that got done wrong. You're gonna have to redo it. And they don't get their feelings hurt and they go, Yeah, that got done wrong. I'm gonna have to redo it. And it's just so it was, it was a really good place to like start getting like rounding off the edges from the military to get a bit, little bit less sharp. So that was cool. And then I went to work for a young startup company in Seattle. So Army Ranger guy from Iowa lands in the middle of like the most liberal group of people and uh you know, West Seattle, you know, on the Western side of Seattle and managing a, a military division for a company that does like wilderness medical training. Right. So having to go and like work with different 
types of environments and people. And they were all younger, so they didn't have kids. So like the whole responsibility of parenting and everything else like that just didn't make sense, you know, to the, to the remainder of the workforce. And then I went from there and I worked for a consulting company. Uh, did product development and then I started combat flip flops. So take it to that moment. How did com- combat flip flops come into your life? I imagine it was probably a little bit of haphazard serendipity with perfect timing, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so the, with the job of that medical company, we were putting facilities in medical facilities and importing pharmaceuticals and medical supplies into um, U.S. government contractors and gas, mineral, and oil operations, and you know people working abroad um, internationally. So I would fly to all these places to check out clinics and make sure all the paperwork got done and things like that. And everywhere I went, I saw that small businesses were the ones that were like providing the most security and prosperity in these conflict regions, the areas where there was business, there was no violence. And so that message kept hitting me over and over again. I thought like, well, why aren't we doing more of this? Like, why are we spending hundreds of billions of dollars dropping bombs that hasn't worked for 20 years when we could spend a significant, like, move the decimal point over a couple to the left and have greater long-term impact. And long story short, walked into a combat boot factory in Kabul, Afghanistan, saw a flip-flop thong punch through a combat boot sole. And the idea was born. Called my ranger buddy, Donald Lee. And uh, a couple months later, my brother, Andy Siri, um, joined on with us and we started a company. What did you really want to do? But besides being in the army, what did you really think you were going to do when you grew up besides owning a combat flip-flop company? Because I can imagine where you, where you are today is the opposite or maybe where you thought your life was going to go after the army. I never thought I'd make it past 30. Like really growing up, like I like fast cars, fast bikes, like doing all those adrenaline type sports. And I never thought I'd make it this far. So I'm counting my blessings now, but yeah, I just never, life beyond 30 wasn't really a consideration for me when I was like 20. And I love what you hinted there. And I want to go back to a little bit that the small businesses where the the best environment for success happened, like the violence was directly reflected to the amount of business. Because that's a little bit, I mean, it's a lot of it of what America always talks about that people don't need a handout. They need a job, give them a job, they get purpose and they get purpose. They can thrive. And the communities that are thriving have the best connection. They have the be- the least amount of crime rate. And I think it's even where the message gets messed up for veterans that like, I love bunker labs. And the reason why I love them is because they don't give veterans a handout. They give them a hand to actually create their own opportunity. And like veterans, that's what they need most right now is opportunity. Cause if you give them opportunity, success will grow. But if you don't, then all the bad things that people could associate as negatively to a veteran happen, but all they really need is just a place for an, for an opportunity to grow and to feel safe and to feel led to, to help do it. So as you raise two daughters that, and I'm a, I have two daughters as well. I have a son in the middle of those two daughters. What are some things that you've kind of learned along the way, something that maybe you messed up on or some type of philosophy that you try to lead your daughters with to help them grow into young, strong women? Um, I struggled, you know, I'm an only child boy, right. And I was raised in a very kind of like masculine environment. So living in a, a house with, with girls was new to me. You know, it's, uh, I think the, the only thing is just, and there were times where I would, uh, be frustrated. Right. And the, the answer every single time, the correct answer was have a little bit of patience and give a little, give a little bit more love. And like, that was it, you know? Yep. And Every that was advice you, to yourself, right? That wasn't like your, that was how you needed to approach the uh, raising girls was have a little bit of patience and have a little bit of love. Yeah, that was on me. Little girls are spectacular. 
they're beautiful. Like if you treat them right, they grow up into these beautiful little beings, right? And they're only there for you to mess up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's on you how they grow up. What's a way that maybe they've helped you become who you are today? Like what's something that you are more of because you had women come into your life? Definitely more empathetic. Like if you can't feel what they're feeling based on what they're saying, you can't make a really positive connection with them, right? In order to help them move beyond it. And if you watch like Brene Brown's TED Talk on um, sympathy versus empathy, if you're familiar with the TED Talk, yeah, everybody should watch it. But anyway, like when you crawl down the hole with somebody else, you go, hey, man, I know you're scared. Like, I've been scared like this too. Here, let's be scared together here for a second. Here's a hug, right? And then you look at them and you go, okay, I've been scared before too. Let's, I've been out of it. Like, I, let me show you the way, right? And, but you can't get them out of that hole until you, you stop and establish a little empathy with them. And that's just uh, what I've just found with raising little girls is like when they're frustrated or angry or whatever, just sit down and empathize with them, hear them out, right? And just show them a lot of love. And then usually they move beyond it positively. Yeah. Do the part that we suck at marriage. Listen versus talk. Don't solve the problem. Just be there. So you've got two daughters. You're, you're, they're growing into young women and they're going to go into the next where they start to go into high school. They start to figure themselves out. As you look through that process of raising your kids, your family, never really knowing how it all works out because every day is its own. Do you ever think about the legacy of your family? I don't know. Um, no, not really. Like it's, it's totally unpredictable. I think like if I try to be my best self every day and lead them to be their best selves every day, like the legacy will happen eventually. I, I don't need to worry about it now. It's going to be what it is regardless. So just do good right now as much as you can and repeat every day. That's perfect because often what a lot of people will get and dads get wrong is you don't necessarily worry so much about the future and you don't worry so much about the past. You worry about the present. That's something that everybody kind of generally thinks about or knows they should be thinking about. But in this particular moment, you're just making sure that they have what they need in this particular moment. And as long as you keep making sure they have what they need to keep growing, they'll figure out how to grow in who they are. And your legacy will be creating two strong women and strong adults that understand their value, understand their love, understand their ability and gifts for the world. Like that is the legacy when your kids go out into the world and understand how they fit into it. You know, raising kids, like I've always, you know, my, uh, their mom and I have always been of the mentality that essentially you're done raising a kid at 14. Like even still the, the honesty buttons, the ability to like, you know, manage and communicate with other people you know, have decent manners, be polite, be empathetic, be considerate, like be mindful, like be, have some basic human hygiene, right? <laughs> um, but after they hit 14, essentially, they're really on their own. And like, they're just going down the highway and you're just keeping them in between the lines, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're the bumper and the bowling yeah. alley. Yeah, that's it. And so, I mean, my girl's 16 now and she, uh, she saved up her own money. She's buying her own car. She's covering her own insurance. Like she's managing her own budget. She's getting all good grades in school. Like, like that's a competent adult. Like that's all that I really care about is that when she steps out into the world, like she can manage her stuff. Mm-hmm. Can you like say that there was something that you were teaching as a father that you can kind of see how it played out now through them growing up of like, well, I really did that one correct because now they make the right choice. Maybe with related to money even. Yeah, I think um, 
especially with this car with Estella, right? I just, I just told her, I was like, look, like if you're going to want to buy this car, you make a plan. You work against that plan. And over the course of a year, you're going to have more than enough money to buy this car. And you're going to be able to buy whatever car you want because it's your money. That's the lesson. If you're a big kid, you earn your money, you can buy what you want. That's the rules. And um, she's like, I'm going to buy a Mustang. And everybody else was telling her, no, you shouldn't get a Mustang. You should get something X, you know, whatever. And she just said, screw it. And she sat down over a year and she got jobs and she worked and she saved. And now she's got the money to buy whatever car she wants. Right. And she is so excited and happy about it. And like that lesson as a kid is like, no, have the patience, save your money, you know, do it right. And now she's picking between, you know, we've looked at five or six cars already. And she's like, no, I don't want that one. I don't want this one because she worked for that money. And so obviously like in exchange for it, she's going to get the right thing. And it's just, it's just good life lessons. They yeah, seem the so independence of freedom simple, of choice. But like, have you done any different things to teach some entrepreneurship? Being an entrepreneur as yourself and understanding how that creates a life of freedom for yourself. My youngest, she's a hustler. She <laughs> is always. She's always like, I, I'm always surprised, but she opens up her wallet and she's got more cash than I do. I'm like, where are you making that? She's like, oh, I sold some art, or oh, I had a lemonade stand, or oh, I did this, and she gets it. Like, she spent five bucks, she'll make fifty, and she's like, I'll do that all day long, right? Um, you know, she hustles really hard and like, just like her sister, you know, she's, she had that mentality from a much younger age of, you know, like I get what I want. It's nice. I have very few things, but what I want serves me. So like, you know, she's got the computer that she needs for all the art that she likes to do. And she, and she just had that mentality and she has the mindset of, if I want money to go make something happen, I can go make it happen. Mm -hmm. The neighbor's got weeds in his yard. Go pull them. Yep. Yeah. If, if I need to do something, I just got to hustle for a little bit. And she is a diligent worker, respectful, mindful, and like, she's, she's good. And that's something that most parents don't spend any time teaching. And it's not something school spends any time teaching, but when kids go into world to be adults, like understanding you're free to your own choices and you can understand the power of creating that freedom out of nothing. Like that is a very powerful lesson that every kid should know. I agree. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you maybe a different question. When you were serving and you went to Iraq or Afghanistan, did you lose any friends over there? Uh, in total, I lost six friends over about five or six years. What was your process kind of working through that versus kind of like being weighed down by it or getting stuck in that decision? Because a lot of dads get hung up on the question why I lived and why he died. And then they forget to be a dad. I think that... Uh just kind of the mindset of, you know, the unit that I was in is like, Hey, we're all doing dangerous work and it could happen to any one of us. But if it happens to us, like let it happen with me charging forward and doing it right. And then you guys make sure you bring my body back to my family. Like, and that's just kind of the, the, the Spartan vibe of the regiment. Um, and all, all the guys I know, they, they passed in that manner. And so we couldn't expect anything more of them. Like they are legitimate heroes and they all knew what they were getting into. And like, it's just part of the job. Um, and it's, it sucks to say that, but it is you know, part of that lifestyle. If you're going to you know, live that way, it, it is a ramification that is going to happen. And um, what I noticed the way you described it is, and I think you actually did this. You didn't say it, but I think you did. You verbalized it with each other. Yeah. I think, I, I never served in Iraq or Afghanistan, but from what I understand, most people don't talk about the death and they don't acknowledge that it's a real thing. They kind of just live every day and hopefully it doesn't happen to them. 
but it's a lot of time because you, when you speak it, an expectation, you make an agreement kind of. And when you convert an expectation from your head to an agreement, it's often easier to understand how you can move through it. But so many of the, the crap that we say in our head as veterans is just a, a conversation in our head, an expectation that's set. And then you leave things unspoken. And it sounds like that being able to speak about it before it happened, you all kind of concretely committed to each other as brothers to always have each other's back. Now, you know that without saying it, but by speaking it kind of like externally validates to your brain that this, this we've got this and that even if you die, someone's got you. Yeah, I mean, in the Ranger Regiment, since the global war on terror has started, they have had zero deaths from losses that could have been prevented. That means every injury that could have lived, lived, right? They have the best medics, period. You know, and we know that if the if anybody's going to save us, it's going to be those guys. And if they can't do it, it was beyond repair and it was fate and it was meant to happen, right? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it would be like for somebody who, you know, joined in 2000 in a National Guard unit you know, to get college money and then got called up and then got sent out and had to deal with, you know, the ramifications of running into an, and then go back to normal, seeing that, not even go back to a base and then, and go back to normal. So I understand there's a struggle there. Like I don't have that in my experience, but I, I can empathize and sympathize with those people, like how difficult that must be. Right. Considering the the conditions in which you made your agreement with the military. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing that I've learned interviewing so many dads in the podcast is that most dads get stuck on that question, why I lived and he died. We forget to be dad and we forget that the best way to honor their death is to come home and be the best fucking dad you can be. Like they gave you the gift to go home and hug your kids. And if they were a dad, they don't get that gift anymore. Their kids never will feel their father's love. And so when you don't step into your best self as a dad, you're actually dishonoring that gift they gave you of giving their life so that you could live. And that's why I mentioned the legacy because when you focus on your family as your legacy, then you can have a new sense of purpose of what you can do with everything that's happened for you versus to you. But as long as you stay kind of in that service mindset of like, why did all this matter? What did it even matter that I was in Iraq or Afghanistan? Like it was just a bunch of politics, like all that crap doesn't have any good answers. And so you, when you get stuck on that, you just end, the, end in these endless loops. And unfortunately, a lot of times they convince themselves that they're a burden to their family and they take their own life because they just can't figure out how to answer those questions. Right. And uh, I had a lot of the same questions when I came, came back because, you know, those guys passed, right? And it was part of the job. But then when you come back and you start looking into why it happened, that's really hard knowing that these exceptionally valiant people passed away doing something that was irrelevant politically or societally or whatever. Um, and there was a Clint Eastwood movie, uh, Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, but everybody should watch it. It's a good old Western. You won't be disappointed. It's Clint Eastwood. It's good. So uh, he's, he's smuggling this nun, right, to this, to this uh, rebel, you know, insurgent base camp. And uh, she is reading him the riot act about not being patriotic. And it turns out through the development of the character, it turns out that he did fight in the army, right? And he was a super badass in the army. And then he found out that they were doing bad things in the army to natives. And he's like, I'm out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. Right. And he left and uh, he looked at her and he goes, yeah, I get it. I understand your patriotism, but everybody's got a right to be a sucker once. 
And I was like, Ooh, that one it hit, hit pretty hard. Right. Like everybody's got a right to be a sucker once. Like, you know, we joined the military and we went and under this agreement, we went and fought all these wars and then we got there and we saw what it was really like. Right. And I hate to say it, but we all kind of got suckered a little bit. The American people got suckered. Like a lot of the guys in the department of defense and all the other agencies got suckered because we've made tangible, deliberate course of action that everybody on the ground there saw and said, Hey, this is going to work. Like, You'll never hear that over the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan from anybody up and down the chain of command, that there was a uniform belief that this was going to work. Like we all got kind of suckered into it for a variety of reasons. Um, and we all got the damage and everything else that came from that. And you come home and you have to deal with it. Like it's your responsibility to deal with it. Not your fault, but it's your responsibility to deal with it. And the only way that I was able to come to deal with it was I just like, all right, all right, man, I was fed all of this information until I was 18 years old, joined the military, ate what they were feeding me, went over, did this. Now I saw it and I can make a reasonable assessment as an adult and go like, okay, the information that I was given was wrong. I got suckered. I have to deal with that, but it's not my fault what happened. It's not my fault my friends passed. It's not my fault all of these things like happened in the chain, right? But it is my responsibility to move beyond it because I have people that are depending on me to move beyond it. Mm -hmm. That your family is still there and that family continues whether you move beyond it or not and you can either be there for it or miss out on the best opportunity you have and step into that new version. And I think what you're also talking to something that in your case, it's also it's talking about like a depth that while this is a horrible circumstance that you maybe were put into under Ill illegitimate circumstances, you still now have a view of the world yourself. You figure out how that happened. Like you become more wiser within that moment. And then you can translate that wisdom to so many other areas of your life that it's, it's the same kind of thing where even if it's like in a political conversation, most people don't spend time adding depth to each side of their own view of like understanding, like creating their own opinion of it. Like whenever you get to experience this stuff, having your own opinion of something and being able to understand it in a deep way, like that still creates a better version of you. Even if you had to learn that lesson under very bad and illegitimate circumstance, it's still something you can go. And I'm sure there's, there's cases where you're running a business now, the depth and the, even just the lessons learned from the, the army and being a, a ranger carry over, even though those lessons were learned under very hard circumstances. All pain has purpose. Is there a particular lesson that you you carry into business regularly that you learn from your time as a ranger, or one thing that you like to talk about the most? As far as kind of like this is a uh, mode of operandi that we use. If you can plan it, you can do it. Like that's yeah. If you can plan it, you can do it. Very Jeff Bezos, Bezos type. Uh, if you've you've got the plan, you can do it. You just got to believe in it and keep going. No, I mean like the first time you get to the ranger regiment, and our big thing is we're, we're either, we do two things. We we're an airfield gangster, or you're a professional professional kidnapper, right? When you, when you invade a country, you steal an airfield and you do that by dumping off a whole bunch of Rangers on the airfield in the middle of the night. And then they steal it from you. And then we start landing our planes and taking over your country. That's how it works. That is the job of airborne Rangers. Um, and the first time you see the amount of airplanes and like operational like network that goes into actually making that happen, you go, holy crap. I mean, 
it is a big deal, like how they coordinate all of that. And it all happens within about five minutes. Like once the wave starts, there is no stopping it. And it is spectacular. And you're like, there's no way that you can, that can, that can happen. Right. When they describe it to you and then you watch all the guys plan it all the way out and how they communicate it to how they rehearse it to how they like prep for execution. And they do it all within like a week long period. And then in the middle of the night, boom, like it all happens. And it's just because of planning. If you can plan it, you can do it. I can, I was visualizing. So as I think many just regular civilians and kids, adults, people in their twenties, they haven't been exposed to a lot of life. So there's a lot of unicorns that they've been told exist, but they've never seen it. So they don't necessarily know it's true. But when you see that type of exercise with the precision, the execution, I mean, you're essentially just describing a massive ISO process that creates the same level of success each time and can produce it rapidly. Like that's what business is. That's how large corporations can repeat the same processes. A thousand airplanes can take off every day. It's just part of the process. And if you've never seen it, you don't really know that it's achievable. And if you can have that seed planted at such an early age, really at that point, the world's your oyster because you're like, I just need to understand how it can work and I can create it because I've seen at the end when all these things start singing together, something beautiful comes out of it. So as we wrap up the interview today, I want to try to get one piece of advice that you want to leave military dads today. If you could wrap all your advice from raising your two daughters, something even in the military, something that would help a dad come home back to their family. Maybe they've got an emotional barrier between them and their family. What's something that you want to gift military dads as a piece of advice that you want them to make sure they get? I think the, the, the advice that I would give to military dads, because you know, they don't teach us very much in the military and it's the, the polar opposite of what, what we used to be successful in the military, but patience and lots of love. Patience and lots of love. I didn't talk about it when you mentioned it the first time, but the second time I'll say it, the military doesn't create a safe place for that love and patience to often grow because everything's kind of go, go, go. You get the hurry up and wait mentality that just requires patience, but you don't really carry that over to being a father because when you're a father, you don't have control and you really need to have patience when you don't have control because you're dealing with people that are not as developed as you are. And that patience is so key. And the love that you bring versus trying to be right or trying to teach a lesson, like just worry about loving them more and that'll end up behind the dividends you need on the other end. Well, Griff, I have really loved this conversation. We've gone in a couple of different directions. We've never gone on the podcast before and you've opened those up and I'm really thankful for those conversations as well. If there's any, where's the best place that people can check out, sorry, check out combat flip-flops. They want to check out what you're up to. Yeah, everything on social is at Combat Flip Flops, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Everything's at Combat Flip Flops. If you want to connect with me personally, I'm at Instagram, Combat Flip Flops, dot Griff, G R I F F. Um, and then always the website, Combat Flip Flops.com. Awesome. And I will include a link of those in the show notes for anybody that want to check them out. And I will see you in uh, the future because this friendship is just getting started and I'm excited to see where it goes. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys got a lot out of that episode. It was just as good to re-listen to it, getting it ready for you. Some of my major takeaways was I've never really heard it from the story of hearing someone's child being born on a sad phone. You know it probably happens, but when you hear it firsthand, you really recognize the emotion of what that was probably like. 
I loved how we moved into teaching your kids the value of money. Entrepreneurship as I move into entrepreneurship is something that I'm really working towards trying to create that idea and process within my kid's life. So I really love that. Raising two daughters myself, we really connected on the journey of the heart that every dad has to go on to. And the survivor's guilt that we talked about, that was really deep stuff that we talked about because so many dads get stuck on that, why did I live? And my friend died and we cracked that wide open. So I really hoped you got something out of that portion. And the patience and control, that is something that dads struggle with so much that we have to have patience for the untethered emotions that are around us. We have to be able to control what we're feeling inside and separate from what we're feeling inside and be able to truly feel what our kids are feeling within not reacting in a way that's going to invoke a serious emotion or a deeper emotion on their part. You really want them just to feel and be able to let their emotion go that they're feeling. If you haven't checked out freedadcourse.com, go ahead and check it out because five lessons on more friendships are waiting for you there. It's a simple five audio course program that will help you bring more friendships into your life because if you've been following the podcast, you know that friendships is what changed my life. And so this was something I knew I had to bring to you guys. Go ahead and check it out at freedadcourse.com. And if this episode or any other episode has touched your life, please reach out to me, ben at militaryveterandad.com. I would absolutely love to hear what's going on in your life. I would absolutely love to know if this podcast, this episode, how it touched your life, how anything that we've created here at Military Veteran Dad has helped you come home as a dad. Those emails fuel me up and they are some of the best ways that I start my day. So with that, I hope you guys have an amazing week and I will talk to you guys again on Friday.